Buddhist Geeks Discover the Emerging Face of Buddhism. Episode 278 Secular Buddhism. This week, we're joined by the host of the Secular Buddhist Podcast, Ted Meissner, to explore what it means to take a secular approach to Buddhist practice. This is part one of a two part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Hello, Buddhist Geeks. This is Vincent Horn, and I'm back today for another Buddhist Geeks interview. And this is an interview that for me has been a long time coming. I've really wanted to have this uh, gentleman on the show and we finally made the time to make it happen. And I'm very, very thrilled today to be joined by Ted Meissner. Ted, thank you so much for joining the Buddhist Geeks. I'm very glad to be here. It's been an honor because I've been a follower of your podcast and work and uh, attendee of Buddhist Geeks Conference. So wonderful to be here. Yeah, great to have you. And just just to mention for those that haven't um, heard of Ted or have heard of your work, um, Ted is the host of the Secular Buddhist Podcast, which is one of the most awesome Buddhist podcasts out there. And he's also the executive director of the Secular Buddhist Association. Let's start with the most basic and obvious question, which is, what is secular Buddhism? What is it? That's a very big question. That's a good <laughs> one. <laughs> we get a lot because people see that and like, wait, it's religion and it's secular. It can't really be both of those. What are you talking about? So the way I, I like to describe it, and there are a lot of different ways to describe it, as we'll see in, in the discussion, is that people in the Buddha's time were searching for meaning, for understanding about their experiences in daily life. That included the joys, the sorrows, the ease and stress, the whole gamut of what we consider conditioned existence. Uh, that's no different than what people do in all times, trying to get it and cope as best we can. And that's the situation we find today. It's just that we have a different cultural backdrop from that of Siddhartha Gautama. We don't see the world in the same way as 2,500 years ago. We don't have the same understanding of the universe as even 500 years ago. So the Buddha was embedded in his cultural environment just as we are and as all people have always been. It colors the way we see the world and engage with our experiences. So at this point, uh, secular Buddhism is an ongoing and evolutionary exploration of what contemporary Buddhism might become. It's very early in that exploration. Uh, it represents an increasingly secular society. We'll talk a little bit more about that. Uh, not as accepting of dependencies on the supernatural or institutionalized religion for spiritual development. Uh, we're interested in how to positively impact the self and others here in this lifetime. So there are a lot of different ways to approach it, but that's it in a nutshell. Okay, cool. Thank you. And I think f there's a common maybe misunderstanding or common myth uh, that Buddhism is like simply not a religion. And yeah. yet, you know, for anyone who's done any sort of practice, especially in Asian context, it's quite clear that Buddhism <laughs> is practiced as a religion oftentimes. Um, Absolutely. And so I'm curious, you know, with the whole 
emphasis on putting secular, you know, in front of Buddhism, obviously there's, and as you're pointing to, there's some need to differentiate or distance um, oneself in, in saying that. Tell me what, what is it that you're differentiating from and what is it that you're sort of wanting to move yourself away from by adding that secular piece to the front? Yeah, you know, that's really at the heart of a lot of the questions and pushbacks we get is that the misunderstanding that this is uh, in some way antagonistic to our traditions, and it, it is not. Uh, the people who are involved with this, um, we typically have a traditional background. I come from a Soto Zen tradition, and uh, my practice evolved into very uh, in-depth Theravada practices. And that colors and informs how I engage with Buddhism because those are very rich traditions. And what we're doing is finding resonance with another part of society, that we need to resonate with people with this human practice. And those of us who are practicing, we all know that, yeah, this applies to everybody. If you're a human, this, this makes sense to you. But we're not going to do that if we insist on, well, you need to accept the Dhamma, you need to be a Buddhist, and you need to do things exactly this way. That kind of dogmatic approach is excluding people from finding benefit in the Dhamma. So there isn't really an attempt, that kind of striving to intentionally draw arbitrary lines of distinction. We're a big tent movement. So it's more about describing what we're seeing in this ongoing exploration uh, what's coming to the surface is that from our cultural backdrop, uh, as we see from the Pew Religious Surveys, our society is becoming increasingly secular. Um, Buddhism is the fastest growing religious designation in the U.S., for example, but it's not the fastest growing or largest designation. The non-religious or the nuns, as they say, N-O-N-E-S, are secular people or those who simply don't align with any particular tradition fit into that. And that includes atheists and secular humanists and spiritual but not religious, a whole lot of people. So with continuing exposure of religious teachers and institutions, ongoing uh, harm of children, for example, or uh, viewing people suffering from mental illness as being possessed, our society is just not as willing to give a hall pass to religious privilege because it is sometimes demonstrably harmful. It's not that religion is all bad, uh, that our traditions don't inform us and don't provide great benefit. It's simply that we're finding freedom to question things and to shift responsibility for our spiritual growth to our own efforts rather than adherence to a particular dogma as finding more traction with contemporary circles. So our focus is going to be more this world-centric uh, because there are all kinds of conflicting narratives about what happens, say, after death, and none of them provide tangible and material evidence that their view is the right one. So it's really hard for us to distinguish how is this right, that right, the other one right. So we maintain an open mind about how uh, that might be, an open mind about new information, uh, but don't hang our hat on compelling stories and simply set those aside as dependent features of secular practice. We can still have wonderful inspiration from our traditions, and we do. Uh, the use of secular doesn't mean that we don't enjoy the stories of the Pali Canon or uh, the Mahayana traditions or all of them. We do very much so because there are ways to 
help us understand what's going on in the world. And, and a lot of that is timeless because it speaks to a human element. It's just that we're interested in what we can see in the world, inspired by those stories and those narratives. And that's where our exploration is finding the most appetite and interest. Okay, okay. And you have a skeptical background, don't you, as well? I, I remember you mentioning at one point that you had uh, something of a background as a skeptic. I, I was curious um, mm-hmm. how that's informed this whole piece and, and what, that, what that means. So skepticism is often confused with cynicism, that because one questions that there's a dismissal, and it's not that. It's an open-minded exploration of how we can discern what's accurate and beneficial from what is not. And those who uh, are familiar with the Kalama Sutta will find some resonance with that idea. Um, My background as an atheist my whole life and as a, a skeptic, someone with a degree in science, my degree is in biology, I find that the need to demonstrate our assertions is very beneficial to what we see in our practice. And what was particularly interesting about Buddhist practice is that the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Path, that whole process of how we engage and turn our minds around to more beneficial actions daily in our lives was standing up to the rigors of my own experience and my own testing and my own experience as to what was happening in the world and what I was hearing from others about how that was positively impacting a transformation in in my life. And my approaches, it has been tremendously valuable. And we see that with, say, the secular humanists as well, that on the one hand, we all agree, be excellent to each other is a great idea. (laughs) We all get on board with that. But that's a what. And what is sometimes missing is the how. And to many of us and those in the, the skeptic community, the how that Buddhist practices show is proving to be standing up to the rigors of that exploration. Okay, interesting. Now, obviously, and I can tell this just by taking a quick glance at some of the podcasts you've had, there's obviously not one view of what secular Buddhism is. I mean, obviously, you've got your own kind of understanding and flavor mm-hmm. that you bring to things, but you're you're talking to a lot of different people who have different approaches to this, sometimes contradictory, sometimes you know, there's disagreements. I'm mm-hmm. curious if you could talk about some of the, the different approaches within the secular Buddhist movement and what you've noticed about some of those different patterns and where, where they tend to actually disagree with each other uh, and what points you know, people tend to disagree about. Because that can, I think, looking at those patterns and looking at those disagreements can uh, maybe say a little bit more about the broader movement itself. Yeah, it does. That's very true. Um, There are many different ways of being a secular Buddhist. Uh, There's no monolithic, this is the one true secular Buddhism. (laughs) We we won't find that. Uh, Some, like uh, our friend Stephen Batchelor, take an approach of re-examining the early suttas to see what the Four Noble Truths may have been intended to be as a call to action in this lifetime. And others of us may resonate more with an approach that's informed by how our contemporary scientific understanding can cast a light on our tradition's practices. 
in how they help us without having to have an adherence to a particular set of religious practices or assertions. Um, the important thing to get all of this is that our practice is for everyone, not just those who are willing to accept Buddhism as their religion whole cloth. Uh, as Buddhists, those of us who do designate that way, it, it, we help raise the awareness of the value of the Dhamma by demonstrating how this applies to you regardless of your ideological affiliation. So we'll see folks who approach this from a way of looking at the traditional writings, say, of the Pali Canon, and they'll say, ah, see, you know, this is really secular. It's talking about our day-to-day -day existence. There are others who will approach it from a more, um, say, at one end of the spectrum, a scientific materialist view that why all of this is part of the natural world and it, it doesn't mean that we don't love, it doesn't mean that we don't have unique experiences which inspire us, of course. That is all part of the natural world as well. And still others who are interested in how this relates to other philosophical views of life. And so there's a great deal of discussion around uh, Kant and Hegel and other philosophers and, and how that ties to, to Buddhism. And we see that there's a recent article uh, by uh, one of the very well-known uh, skeptical bloggers that's a comparison of Buddhism with some of the other uh, uh, philosophers of the day and how those compare with one another and how they don't. So there are all kinds of discussions that are occurring around that where we tend to agree within the, uh, the very big tent uh, umbrella of secular Buddhism is what works for us today that we can show in this life within conditioned existence. And our dependent practices are reliant on what we do today and what we can see and how that helps us moment by moment in our interactions with ourselves and our own minds, our own stresses, and to our immediate families and to our society as a whole. Uh, there does seem to be a theme of societal change and transformation that crosses the lines uh, across the, the different areas of the way one approaches secular practice. There seems to be an interest in making that positive change in the world. And in particular, as we have a smaller and smaller global society that becomes more and more important. The differences uh, aren't so much disagreements about points of ideological dogma uh, because we don't really have much resonance with that. We know that things are in flux and don't dictate this is the one true practice. You have to do it this way. So those things are set aside. We value one's personal experience. Uh, many of us light incense and bow in our meditation practices. I do that every day. I light incense and I bow in and out of my meditation practice. And if you find me, for example, as a, a materialistic reductionist sitting in retreat at Bhavana Society in West Virginia under the auspices of Bhante Gunaratna, and next to me is a monastic who does have a belief in a literal rebirth and ongoing, and the goal is the ending of the wheel of samsara, you won't really see any difference in our practice and what we're doing today. And you'll find complete agreement about what we want to do in our minds, in our meditation, the practice itself. Um, so our, our 
differences are more in terms of what's our area of interest rather than disagreements about how to be a secular Buddhist. Is there any room for, for like intense disagreements though? Cause I, cause I know there are intense disagreements among, you know, uh, people that listen to Buddhist geeks sometimes. And, you know, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> obviously, you know, I, I think maybe there's a distinction here between disagreeing in an ideological way, like saying, mm-hmm. you know, this is the right ideology, you know, that is the right ideology. And then disagreements that are, you know, more like, Hey, I'm, I think you're missing something here. Mm-hmm. And I think there's something you, you're not aware of, um, you know, those disagreements can also feel heated because even if we're not maybe clinging to an ideology, at least this, this is what I've noticed, there's still a way in which, you know, uh, we tend to cling to our ideas about things. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe not ideologically, like maybe we can like let go after we hear, you know, a different perspective, you know, in a few days we start to think about things differently, but still, you know, the, the, I, I've just noticed disagreement doesn't seem to go away even, you know, even when big, uh, identities with ideologies start to, dissolve. So I'm wondering how, how you see that and how you work with that uh, within your community. I think it's a, it's a very good point is that we are going to have disagreements. That is going to happen. And and how we address that uh, when they do occur has so far been, you know, there's a raising of the heat, the water boils a little bit. <laughs> and then we all kind of take a step back and calm down and understand that there are going to be certain points about which we disagree. It doesn't mean that we don't respect or like each other. We have disagreements about what are some of the key drivers about how we've gotten to the conclusions that we've gotten to. Uh, For example, there's uh, a very good discussion, although it has sometimes been a little pointed, on uh, one of the episodes that we had on uh, Dharma Voices for Animals, which is a site that is about uh, switching to a non-meat-based diet, to veganism, vegetarianism. And for many of us as Buddhists, what we've found very compelling about this is our understanding of the suffering of others and our compassion, that the integrated uh, and really in-depth understanding and experience and practice of compassion leads us to a point where it's really not something we can ethically accept in our own lives to eat meat. And and so we have written that out of our lives. And for me, that's a relatively new thing. And it's been an interesting transformation, an interesting challenge, but one that has proven to be very beneficial in, in a number of different ways. Others on the discussion, although they do understand that particular point of view, don't share it because of some of their own particular background interests and understandings of how things work. They're not denying any of the facts and evidence that there is suffering that goes on, but they're reaching a different conclusion about how they relate to that in their own practices and the choices that they make. And so there, there is, again, happily one of the common threads is understanding that we're not going to have those agreements. We can't expect everyone to be on the same page with this. Um, where the biggest disagreements that we tend to have aren't so much within our own community of people who are uh, more progressive and open-minded uh, about others having different points of view. It's from uh, those who are uh, more focused on an ideological truth with a capital T and that 
what we are therefore doing is harmful to the Dhamma and secular practice is associated with Nazism. I, I, I get that one all the time and I, I admonish people to please do your homework before you make that accusation because it's, it's really wrong. The, the, <laughs> it's the Nazis pretty, get pulled into pretty much everything. Everything. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, they do. Anything bad, therefore Nazis. It, it's uh, it's uh, kind of amusing at this point because it's such a ridiculous and unfounded argument and the, their party was really based on a, a religious... <laughs> <laughs> Dis, uh, distinction between groups, not one based on anything rational. It's it's not a matter of uh, evolution or social evolution or Darwinism is is often a term that I hear used. That's just a gross misunderstanding of that entire context of that whole horrific part of our history. Um, so there are some pushbacks there, and there are some disagreements. But what I I like to see occur. As some of the discussions we've had with those with whom we, we enter into it knowing we have fundamental disagreements about things that we know we will not change the other and that's not our intent but we still have very positive engagements and uh, one of the discussions with uh, one of the Tibetan monastics who's been on the podcast is around that. We, we do have a discussion around things like rebirth and we know we have different views on it and we shared what those were and why we have the understandings that we do. And it was still very companionable and friendly and we still agreed that what we do in this world is still very much in alignment. So that's part of our practice in right speech and right action is trying to find that synchronicity where we can align because that's where we're finding the most value okay okay i think this this sort of starts cutting right into the heart of of what is secular buddhism and how is it different than past forms of buddhism um would you say that's a new emerging understanding of right speech that's coming with a more kind of like what i hear you describing is a more kind of rational discourse where one is able to Mm -hmm. describe um the the kind of reasons underlying the conclusions that we've made and Mm -hmm. sort of like being able to not not like you mentioned the term dogma before not not simply have a belief in the way things are without any reasons except for the reason being that's that's the way it is Um, (laughs) is this a new understanding of right speech and from your understanding of the history of buddhism i mean is this a is this a an emergent i guess is the question uh, you know, I don't think it's a new understanding at all because we see it referenced in the Pali Canon that, uh, that we really try to get along and, and that there not be always uh, – for example, you'd have people coming to the Buddha saying, I, I think this, and he'll ask some questions and the person will have a new understanding and they may or may not be convinced and there's a a simple ending of the discussion at that point and the person may – show up in later suttas and engage again. So we do see that. I don't think right speech itself is undergoing a a new emergence. What is happening, however, is that with the advent of uh, social networking and digital technology and our um, propensity to type out something without as much mindfulness as we might have when we're directly facing someone and have those in-person cues that we evolved to have as social creatures, we're separated from that. 
So what we see is people in person may be very kind and very engaging and we can really make good progress and at the very least understanding. But online, separated from those cues, it goes in a very different and negative direction. <laughs> and there's a phrase that, you know, you have an axe in your mouth and it's your tongue and we now have knives and at the end of our arms are fingers as we type. And so what we're seeing is greater opportunity for us to be lax in our application of right speech. And that's where we're seeing some, some real challenges in how people uh, speak with one another because it, it can be different if we apply the same uh, awareness of what we're saying that we do in person as we do online. It's not to say that we shouldn't call out nonsense as nonsense. We should, particularly if it's harmful nonsense. Um, but at the same time, we don't have to be jerks about it. <laughs> okay, interesting. So there, there's a distinction in what you're saying between you know, using argumentation as a way to call out nonsense to challenge each other to help each other learn mm -hmm. and then you know being being a jerk or um you know uh essentially attacking one another personally i mean there's a, there's right. there's some right. sort of distinction there and what you're what i hear you saying is that right speech uh in that sense hasn't really changed so much right right speech itself is sound and valid and positively beneficial is this helpful? Is this beneficial? Is this done with a heart of friendliness and compassion? Is this, and here's the, one of the trickiest ones, is it the right time? <laughs> Which is very hard for us to, to get around. When is the right time to approach this? And the only thing in the whole uh, right speech toolkit uh, that is, is still a negative one is what you say might, might not always be well received. And that's okay. You can still go forward with that. But everything else, the, is it timely? Is it inspiring? Is it from a place in the right heart? These are all somewhat difficult for us to do at all times, particularly online. So I'm, I'm seeing it more so as a, an effect of some of the ways in which we can communicate now that we didn't have in the Buddha's time. Right speech itself is right on. Okay, interesting. So – this is one of the things I've sort of struggled with, especially, especially being, you know, like um, a millennial in, in, the, in a boomer world. I'd mm -hmm. say part of it is that I sort of come into environments where, in particular, uh, like in the insight meditation world, which I've, by the way, before I say this, I'll just qualify it by saying I've really appreciated the teachers and the environments I've had to practice in. Yeah. And yeah. yet, I sometimes will come into these environments and feel like, there's a way in which uh, right speech simply means being nice all the time and kind of blowing smoke <laughs> up each other's asses, you know, to use. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and it and, doesn't. And, 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 when, and the piece you said about, you know, even if it's not received well, like part of, you know, part of pointing something out to someone, and I've been on the receiving end of this probably more than I've been on the, uh. <laughs> on the offering end of this, <laughs> is like it, it really challenges something like an identity or it challenges a notion. And it's, it really feels like I'm being attacked. Yeah. And yeah. If, so me, for me, it, it, the whole issue of right speech really gets muddied and clouded by 
like the tendencies that we as humans have to not want to rock the boat mm-hmm. and also to, it's very difficult i guess at least in my experience to differentiate in the moment with when mm-hmm. someone is really offering something of value um and when it's actually a personal attack and it usually takes a long time to kind of piece those things apart which and for me makes has always made the whole issue of right speech and the culture surrounding it very challenging and i've never quite found a community in which i feel like uh you know speech is is easier or, or like there's clear guidelines or anything yeah it's very difficult to to have that because we we are going to need to talk about topics sometimes about which there may be deep divides uh, let's take for example um, and, and something that's not specifically Dhamma related, so we'll, we'll edge away from that, that uh, say acupuncture and its, its validity as a medical treatment to heal tissue. And there are very different opinions on that and very um, conflicting ways to interpret controlled studies about it. We may be able to challenge one another and ask Okay, so how about this? Because my understanding is based on on this information. Uh, how do you address that? And like you and I are doing now, we're going to ask about that. So what I, I found very useful, again, in our magic bag of tricks <laughs> of right speech, is sincere inquiry. Because we can be quite honest with ourselves, not the least bit disingenuous, that I raise my hand and say, I really don't understand your point of view. And I really do want to, because I may be missing something. That's a very true statement. Again, going back to the, it's okay to say, I don't know. We should be all right with that and understand this as a shared exploration of what's really going on. Because independent of our views about it, stuff is really going on. (laughs) And it's, uh, I think with regards to the idea about Having to be nice, um, we've had some pushback on that on the site, and we we put up standards uh, to adhere to for the most beneficial results in our discussions online. So we built this whole set of guidelines that we'd like people to adhere to, um, which is not you know, outright telling people, no, you're wrong, you don't understand. <laughs> Instead, we'd rather go towards active questioning. Uh, and of course... Uh, Harsh speech, again, going back to the value of, I think the value of, of right speech is harshness, swearing, all that is not necessary. It doesn't help. It creates agitation and bad feelings. It's for that reason that we don't want to have it there. And the only time we've gone and had to block a few people from our discussions or from the Facebook page is when it's been outright abusive speech, not active questioning. That can be very difficult. Uh, And that's okay. That happens. These are good questions. It's when there are accusations and ad hominem attacks. It's one of the logical fallacies we run into where we associate whatever someone's view is with their failings as a person and we attack the person. That's not okay. So let's move away from that and on to more fruitful dialogue. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. 
This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.